0: All right, I hope you had a good new year. We have a lot to cover today, so let's go ahead and jump straight into it. The title of our lesson today is The Unstoppable Word. The Unstoppable Word. When it comes to the attributes of Scripture, there's many that we could, uh, that many define that mark God's Word. We could uh, see that God's Word is absolutely inerrant. It is without error in the original manuscripts and all things pertaining um, to uh, theology or uh, geography or archaeology. God's word is absolutely inerrant. It's completely infallible, right? It's divinely inspired. This is the product of God's breath. It's perfectly sufficient in all things in life and godliness. It's a repository of absolute truth, Uh, The psalmist says that it's perfect, reviving the soul. God's word is sure, making wise the simple. It's right, rejoicing the heart, pure, enlightening the eyes, clean, enduring forever. God's word is altogether desirable, altogether sweet, altogether delightful. Uh, The attribute, though, that I want to focus on today, that this passage focuses on today is the unstoppable nature, the unstoppable power of the word of God. And God's word is powerful, is it not? Right, by his word, God has created the heavens and the earth. By his word, God has formed the loftiest mountain in the most vast ocean. By his word, God causes dead men to live and blind eyes to see. By his word, God regenerates hardened hearts to see the glory of his gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. By his word, God sanctifies believers so that they might be conformed to the image of his Son. God's word is altogether powerful. No more wonder then, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 28, what does straw have in common with wheat, declares the Lord? Is not my word like fire and like a hammer which breaks the rock into pieces? God's word is infused with unbreakable might, because this is the word of the omnipotent ruler of the universe. No man, no woman, No king can prevent the word of the living God from coming to pass. And that is the case of King Ahab in our chapter today. Ahab, we remember, was the most wicked king. He's been set apart in these last few chapters, showcasing the the wickedness of his heart that nobody was like King Ahab, a man, a king who had sold himself to do sin. We see that Ahab has walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. He has uh, fanned the flame of Baal worship among the people. He has committed abomination in marrying the most wicked woman of uh, the ancient world, Jezebel. He's murdered innocent families for insignificant vegetable gardens. But as if that were not bad enough, there was one final nail In Ahab's coffin, it was this, that he was a man who refused to heed and to listen to the word of God. Sure, uh, we saw at the end of chapter 21 last time that at times he expressed humility, but in the words of Apostle Paul centuries later, this was nothing but worldly sorrow. This was not sorrow that led to repentance, but sorrow over the consequences of his sin. When it came down to it, Ahab was a man who hated the truth, despised the truth, and sought with all his might to stop God's word, yet try as you might, God's word proves inevitable. The disasters that are declared against him will not be broken, and so it's with this theme in this final chapter, as we look at Ahab's life here, that we get this important lesson. That the author teaches us, it's this, that God unequivocally demonstrates the unstoppable power of his word. This is the showcase of the final days of Ahab's life to, to remind and implant in our hearts a reminder today that God's word cannot, will not be broken. This unstoppable power of God's word progresses in this chapter in three stages. Join with me as I look at the first stage. That's the pronouncement of the word. This is verses 1 through 23, the pronouncement of the word. We see this pronouncement comes because of a renewed border war. <clears throat> a renewed border war. Border war. Look at verse 1. Three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. We saw last time, a few weeks ago I should say, uh, in chapter 21, excuse me, chapter 20, that Yahweh had won a resounding victory over Israel's arch-nemeses there, and things had had been quiet now between the two. Yet while war did not occur between Israel and Aram, this doesn't mean that uh, all things were completely peaceful and serene. In fact, ancient uh, records and historians teach us that uh, there was actually, during this time, a period in which both Aram and Israel joined forces they formed a 12 king coalition to ward off an invasion from eastern superpower Assyria at the battle of Karkar. And I just have a little map here for you. So we had Nineveh that was coming through like a buzzsaw, trying to take out all these lands. And so we have Aram and we have Israel. They join up for a, a, a time in order to to ward off this impending invasion. Historians tell us that the Assyrian records bloated their final results. They c- declared overwhelming victory. But what actually happened is what usually happens in, uh, as ancient uh, manuscripts try to declare their victory. That What happened actually was that they halted um, their advance. They were drawn to a stalemate by Ahab uh, and Israel and Aram and these other kings. And so they were forced to go back to Nineveh licking their wounds, which of course they'll come back later as we'll see. But it's in this time, after these three years have passed, that now with some kind of, uh, of this uh, time of peace, Ahab is able to look and focus his attention elsewhere. And so we look with me at verse 2. Specifically, this is Ramoth Gilead. It says, in the third year, Jehoshaphat, that's a, after this battle with the Syrians, this third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah came down to the king of Israel. Now, as we'll learn next time, as we look at Jehoshaphat's life uh, more in death, we'll learn that he was a faithful king. He was a man who loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. However, he had one glaring blemish, like this obscene wart on the, the tip of his nose. Uh, that during his reign, he made several ill-advised alliances with the southern kingdom, or excuse me, with the northern kingdom of Israel. He had married his daughter uh, to Ahab's. Uh, excuse me, he had married his son to Ahab's daughter. And so here he is in verse 2. He's coming to check on things, how things going on in the northern kingdom. Ahab sees it as a golden opportunity. And so in verse 3, now the king of Israel makes his move. He says to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we're still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? Ramoth Gilead is, uh, we see here, there's Damascus. Uh, this next picture, Ramoth Gilead is over here in the east, and it's a frontier settlement of Israel's land allotment by the Lord. It functioned uh, as a city of refuge for the people, and during Solomon's administration, it was a, an important district. And the reason for that is because of its strategic location here on this purple line, what is is called the King's Highway. What Uh, There's two main thoroughfares in the uh, Middle East. The first is what's called the Intercoastal Highway. Uh, If I can use my mouse here. So this main red line right here came along the coast. And that was the main uh, route that people used for trade and commerce in that day. But there was a second one to the east of the Jordan, which is this uh, yellow arrow right here, which is called the King's Highway. And so Ramoth Gilead, we see, lies on this king's highway. And so what it was, was a strategic uh, location because it served as the heart of going into Israel. A person that controlled this city really controlled the lifeline of the northern nation of Israel. And so at this time, it would seem that Aram and Ben-Hadad, they had captured Ramoth Gilead at some time in the past. And as we learned in chapter 20, verse 34, Ben-Hadad was supposed to give back some of the cities uh, after his... Uh, treaty with Ahab when he lost. Well, he hadn't done that, which is no surprise there, right? And so Israel, uh, Ahab is upset about that. He's like, guys, we have been doing nothing about this. Now it's our time. Let's go back and take this key city. That way we can have access to trade, commerce, prosperity, uh, and economic flourishing. And so here comes Jehoshaphat now, and Ahab says, all right, now it's the time. Now is a golden opportunity for us to do what we need to do. And the reason for that is because Jehoshaphat was a expert in military war. He had, as Second Chronicles says, three hundred thousand valiant soldiers. He won many battles, he conquered many places, and so Ahab says, Alright, this is the right guy that I want on my side. Let me go ahead and get him over here. And so in verse four of First Kings twenty-two, he says to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? In fact, if we look at our corresponding chapter in Second Chronicles chapter 8, he not only asks him this polite request, he really rolls out the red carpet. We see there that Ahab slaughtered many sheep and oxen for him and the people who were with him and induced him. He enticed Jehoshaphat to come up with him against Ramoth Gilead. So Ahab tries whatever he can in order to entice and to lure this guy to come onto his team to join an alliance to go with him into battle, and guess what? It it works. As we see in verse 4, Jehoshaphat says to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Literally, the Hebrew text says, Like me, like you. Like my people, like your people. Like my horses, like your horses. Jehoshaphat gives his total allegiance he gives everything that is his, his people, his horses, his military. He says, hey, guy, I'm all in. And he yokes himself with a servant of darkness. But to his credit, he does make an important request in verse 5. Before he's going to join in this war with Ahab, he says, well, let's first inquire of the word of the Lord. What does God have to say about all this? And So then, that brings us then to a revealing prophetic inquiry, a revealing prophetic inquiry, and this inquiry be- begins with flattering deceivers, flattering deceivers. In verses five through twelve, look with me at verse five. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, "Please inquire first for the word of the Lord, that the sons of Israel had done during the time of the judges and." And like David had done when he was out in his military campaigns, Jehoshaphat prizes what the word of the Lord says. Will God declare victory for us or defeat? Ahab, on the other hand, as we can see, he really has no desire. There's no desire in his heart to know what God's word has to say about this. He's ready to just blunder off into a military campaign, totally ignoring what God's will is on this. But, he obliges the request. Remember, he's trying to get this help from this king. So he's like, all right, let's, let's do that. Let's figure out what is God's word. What does what the word of the Lord have to say about this? That brings us into verse six. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. Now, when's another time that we saw Ahab gather 400 prophets, right, in the, the uh, Mount Carmel, right? And who are those prophets? The prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah. Well, as we see here who these prophets are, th- these are Ahab's prophets. Uh, these are not prophets of the Lord. Understand, these are, these are men who don't so serve Yahweh, but men who serve to tickle the king's ears. So he's gathered these 400 prophets, and he says to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And listen, listen to what they say. This is very interesting. It's key. They say this, Go up... For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Now, there's two interesting observations here to to take note of. Uh, The first is, maybe you caught it, maybe you didn't, is notice what they say. They say the Lord, right? The Lord who? This is not Lord, all caps. Pastor Tom just explained that to us here this morning. This is not Yahweh, but this is just Lord. Yahweh, obviously, we know, or excuse me, Lord in all caps, as you know, refers to to Yahweh, to Yahweh. Israel's only true God, the God who redeemed them. While Lord lower caps can refer, uh, can refer to Yahweh, and it does at times in the Old Testament, but it can just as likely refer to any Lord, any master, any God. And so who whose prophets are these? Are they speaking for Yahweh, or are they speaking for the gods of Ahab's golden images? Well, the second thing that we see here in these verses, is just the vagueness of their message, right? We see there that in our English translation that they've supplied an it, that it is, uh, the the it, the word it, excuse me, is in cursive. It's um, not um, part of the original Hebrew, but has been supplied. And so what Hebrew uh, commentators, what they show us here is that this prophecy is, is just really fuzzy, Uh, they're they're so vague they don't really say what's going to be given they don't really explain who's going to prosper they don't really say who's going to win this battle he just says go up and we'll be given to you and so really what could happen here is that anything these guys could even be saying that Ahab could be given into the hands of the king of Aram and so these generalities, they, they shouldn't surprise us, right? They shouldn't surprise us when they come to false teachers and to false prophets in the world, right? Like ambiguous horoscopes and fortune cookies, false, false teachers, so water down the word of God to, to make it fit whatever a person wants to hear so that they can flatter those listeners. That's exactly what we are seeing here. And so while Ahab is satisfied by their tickling message. We see that Jehoshaphat, he he smells something's fishy going on. There's something in the water here. Something's not right. And so in verse 7, he responds this way. He says, Is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh here that we may inquire of him? I I don't know who these guys are, but these guys are not prophets of Yahweh. And since they're not prophets of Yahweh, that means they don't have the word of Yahweh. I want to know what God's word says. I don't want to know what these guys are saying about this so-called Lord or God that they're talking about. No, I want to know what Yahweh's word is. Is there any true prophet? Well, verse 8, the king of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, and I can see him sighing here with maybe a note of content. There is yet one man, one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. The Hebrew here is emphatic. I hate this guy with all my guts because he does not prophesy concerning me good, but evil. That's Ahab's problem here. This guy does not care about God's word. Right? It's all about him. His world revolves around me, myself, and I. He does not care for the truth. He does not care for the word of God. In fact, he's so convoluted in his understanding (coughs) that he equates, notice, the truth of God for evil. This guy does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. This guy does not give me God's word. He gives me something evil. So he is equating God's truth with what is evil. This is Ahab's world. He is self-absorbed. Well, verse 8 says, Who is this lone voice in this spiritual desert of Israel? This prophet, surprisingly, is not Elijah, but Micaiah, son of Imlah. Most likely, the ever-elusive Elijah was not at King Ahab's beck and call, but this man was. We don't have any background for him. We don't know where he came from other than that he was the son of Imlah. And most likely, it would seem that he was under the custody, under the custody of Ahab. We'll see later in the chapter that Ahab's officials will return him to where he came from. So it seemed that he's already imprisoned in some way, in some sense, under um, by Ahab by his officials, and so he's already had previous um, beef, if you would, with Ahab. So here is this prophet. Ahab hates him because he speaks for the word of God. Ahab wants nothing to do it do with it if it had. Uh, If he had it his way right now, he would squash this whole thing. He would not let it progress anymore. But Jehoshaphat, thankfully, ever persistently says in verse 8, let the king not say so. Come on, man, don't be like that. Don't be like that. This guy's a true prophet. Let's hear what this guy has to say. So verse 9, then the king reluctantly probably calls an official and says, all right, bring quickly Micaiah. Son of Benblad, and as they wait for the arrival of Micaiah, the, narr- the narrative builds as we uh, see in verses ten through twelve. Uh, as these uh, flattering deceivers, these false prophets, are going to put on quite a show for these two kings. In verse ten: Now the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor, at the entrance of the gate of Samaria and all the prophets were prophesying before them. (coughs) Then Zedekiah, the son of Canaanah, he's most likely the the lead spokesman here, they made horns, excuse me, he made horns of iron for himself. And he says, notice here, this is interesting, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. In verse 12, all the prophets, now confirming this prediction, were prophesying, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for notice the Lord Yahweh will give it into the hand of the king. So we can see here the, the, the nature of these deceivers, the nature of these prophets, their compromising message. Right? They can change, they'll twist the message of uh, their prophecy in order to adapt, in order to to please their crowd. These are wily con artists in Ahab's service. They say, now it is Yahweh who will come. Now uh, it is Yahweh who will give this city. Now you, Ahab, will prosper. Now you will have success. And to, to give their message some added umph here, notice what Zedekiah does. He uses prophetic symbolism. And, and when he does, he alludes to a promise that God had given back in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 17, another blessing that Moses had issued there. And there the divine blessing was that God was going to make Ephraim and Manasseh like a wild ox who would push around the peoples of the earth. So that's what Zedekiah is doing here. He's drawing upon that scripture and he's using it as the foundation for his prophecy to say, hey, you remember that prophecy that God gave a while ago to bless you? Well, Ahab, guess what? That same prophecy is coming out true. You're going to be like that wild ox. You are going to be that one pushing around the nations, goring the nations, and you will have success. And That's informative, right? It's informative because that's exactly how false teachers, that's exactly how false teaching works. right? It's to, to take just enough of the truth, that to spin it and to twist it, and then, Voila, out comes a message in which has just a, enough of a hint of the truth that people are to decei- see are deceived into thinking that what they're hearing is actually the word of the Lord. But it's not, right? They say, well, well this guy, is a kind of, yeah, he's using the Bible, right? Oh, that false teacher down the street, that, that, that teacher in the church, they're using the Bible, right? Don't they have their Bible out? Aren't they using God's word? It's not enough to just use God's word, right? It's not enough to just quote the scripture, right? True heralds of the word not only utilize the Bible, but they cut the word straight. They proclaim the accurate meaning of the text by faithfully declaring what the inspired author meant by what he said. And so that's exactly what we see here as these false teachers are twisting the word of God what we're going to see now is then a faithful prophet, one who is going to cut straight, the one of God, the word of God, one who is going to faithfully declare the message of the Lord. And so we have this faithful prophet in verses thirteen through twenty-three. Now, before we look at these few verses, just just imagine the scene here, right? Just just put yourself here in Micaiah's shoes, as you if you, as if you were walking to go see these two kings. Now you have the kings of Israel and the king of Judah finely dressed in the splendor of their royal robes. They are dressed in all kind of pomp. Right There they are, they're perched on their thrones, signifying their authority. They're in the middle of this intense council of war in which their deliberations are going to result in either the, uh, the glory and the victory of a nation or the defeat and the destruction of Israel many souls. The, loca- the location, as it says, is outside the city gate. It's a threshing floor. And so this would have been a, uh, the very heartway, the very flow of traffic. People would be coming in and out. There would have been masses gathered around for this to hear what will be the decision, the verdict of the king. Are we going to war or are we not? And if that's not enough, there's 400 prophets, 400 so-called messengers declaring the word of the Lord with one voice saying, yes, go up. We are going to prosper. We are going to have success. And then here comes one man being dragged by officials. One man who is a prisoner of the state. One lone voice against all of that. I mean, can you imagine the intimidation, the the pressure, the challenge, what Micaiah was facing as he looked and saw what he had to do? Would he compromise? Would he join in these prophetic shenanigans? No, and one of the most encouraging displays of faithfulness, he boldly declares The word of the Lord. We see first it's his unwavering conviction. His unwavering conviction. Verse 13, Then this messenger who went up to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying this, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please, let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. Pressure, right? Compromise your message. Water down your truth. Go with the crowd. Go with the flow. Hey, don't be dumb here, man. Everybody is saying, this is going to succeed. You say what they're saying. What does he say in verse 14? As the word lives what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. What conviction. What boldness. What unwavering firmness on the word of God. Here is a man who is not going to give in to the intimidation of the world. Here is a man who is not going to give in to what everyone else around him is doing. He will speak the word of God in nothing else. Right, faith builders, let this be our battle cry of the day, right? I don't care what what my family is saying. I don't care what my coworkers are doing. I don't care what so-called scientists are teaching. I don't care what politicians are propagating. I don't, I don't care what so-called even preachers are preaching in the church today. I am going to stand forward and preach the word of God. I am going to stand up for the truth and declare it to whoever is in my life. Family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, whoever it may be, I am going to speak the word of God. Jeremiah says this again in Jeremiah chapter 23, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let the person who has God's word speak his word in truth. Let that be our battle cry today. This unwavering conviction be our stance as well. Verse 15, so here he is. He's given his, his stance. This is what he's going to do. Look at this surprising verse in fifteen. What's going on here? When he came to the king, the king said to him, "Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain?" And he answered him, yeah, "Go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king." Right? This is sarcasm. Uh, Micaiah sarcastically tells the king exactly what he wants to hear. He's like, "You know, what, Ahab, you don't even want the truth. Like you're bringing me here, but you don't really want You don't really care about what I have to say. So you know what? Hey, go up." Oh, yeah, Yahweh, yeah, he'll give it into your hand. You'll succeed. Well, this doesn't sit well with Ahab. Uh, I assume he was a little bit ticked off by this. Verse 16. Then the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Ahab is he's upset. He knows that what Micaiah just said is not the truth. He knows that he is just um, uh, he is being uh, sarcastic with him. And so he tells him, no, speak to me the truth of God. And so then that brings us to his shocking pronouncement. His shocking pronouncement. Okay, Ahab, uh, you really want the truth? I don't know if you can handle the truth, but if you want the truth, here you go. Here it is. Verse 17. So he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. Ahab, and if you go up there, there's no prosperity. There's no success. Ahab, if you go up there, you will not be like a wild ox. You'll become like scattered sheep. Your army will be defeated and you will die. That is the word of the living God. Verse 18, then in a response, you know, that's so fitting to to Ahab's petty temperament, he says, the king of Israel says to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that you would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Right, see, see, did I not tell you? This guy, he is not going to tell me anything good, only that which is evil. Man, I hate this guy. That's Ahab's response. That's his thought here. He's not interested in the truth, but it's only interested about himself. But Micaiah uh, is not done yet. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. In response to what Ahab has just turned and said to the king of Judah, Micaiah says, I have something else to tell you. I have another pronouncement to give to you. Listen up here, Ahab. You think that this is all about you? You you think that, that this is just my ill will directed at you? No. Listen, this is the word of God. Hear, The word of God. Understand the gravity of your situation. Ahab, the high king of heaven is dealing with you right now. And it would be best that you listened up. (coughs) So in verse 19, he goes on and continuing in his shocking pronouncement. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to them, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. And a far greater reality there was another war council going on in the courts of heaven there there was a far greater sovereign sitting upon his throne with his myriads of hosts arrayed around him and his deliberations were were about how to shockingly bring down the king of israel and so we see that while this council is deliberating there's one spirit mo- most likely an angelic being who, who offered himself up to serve as the agent, to carry out the divine will, to carry out God's judgment upon Ahab. He will go forward, he will deceive Ahab's prophets, he will deceive these 400 men who will then in turn mislead Ahab to go into battle and thus go to his death and defeat. And notice the end of verse 22, God says not only are you to entice him, but also prevail go and do so he says right the, the lord of hosts not only permits this deception but he himself assures its victory it assures its success which of course sparks all kinds of questions concerning about the sovereignty of god and evil to which this passage really doesn't have any care about right Th- this text doesn't have anything to say on that issue other than this, that scripture is clear that God is sovereign, he is on his throne, that he has declared his will, and not only has he declared it, but all has, uh, all that he has declared he will bring about. And in the sovereignty of God, he is the one who accomplishes, wor- accomplishes his word by permitting evil agents to delude those who are already hardened in their sin to lead them into further sin. And judgment. This is what Second Thessalonians teaches us where Paul says this about the Antichrist, that his coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. Notice for who it is, it's for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Right? Ahab took pleasure in wickedness. Ahab took pleasure not in the truth so as to be saved but in unrighteousness and so as part of God's plan of judgment to carry out upon Ahab he permits an evil agent to go forward and to deceive Ahab so that Ahab would bring judgment upon himself right as a manifestation of his judgment God sent his deluding influence through the spirit of the prophets so that he would believe what is false in order that he might perish you know the marvelous truth about all this is is it even in judgment God is merciful. Right. God tells Ahab what he's doing. Ahab, I'm deceiving you through these prophets. Ahab, these guys are liars. I'm telling you this, Ahab. I'm revealing this truth to you. I mean, are you talk about mercy of God? This is God's mercy in dealing with Ahab even in this. Verse 23. Now, therefore, behold. Here's Micaiah. Behold, Ahab, listen to this. Hear this. Right? Yahweh, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these, your prophets. All these guys are liars, Ahab. Understand that. And Yahweh has proclaimed disaster against you. Not good. You will not go up and succeed. You will not go up and prosper. You will die there. But Ahab, you can listen to this message. You can listen to to the word of the Lord right now and you can be saved. You don't have to perish, Ahab. Hear the word of God, and you can be saved. This is the mercy of God, and this is the shockingly good mercy and love of God. If there's anyone here in this room today, understand that the same reality is going forward as the word of God is being preached here, right? Utter disaster has been proclaimed against you who are not in Christ, you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, it is sure there's nothing that can stop the word of God from coming about in your life. Destruction and death because you do not know God, you do not love God. That's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says. Jesus Christ will come in power with his angels in flaming fire and he will deal out righteous retribution. But God has not left you in the dark on that. God is proclaiming that word to you today so that you would jump onto the second ark in which you can escape the flood of fire that is coming upon this earth. The Lord Jesus Christ has offered himself up for you and your sins, and you can find salvation today. Hear the word of God. Would you climb out of your slew of deception, and would you come into the oasis of truth? And so with that, shocking proclamation is given to Ahab, to any who are not in Christ today. There's no stopping the word of the Lord. That brings us in, how will Ahab respond? Will he listen? Will he heed this message? Well, it comes to our second stage, and that's the rejection of the word. The rejection of the word, verses 24 through 28. We see that the word is rejected through three characters, First is by a deluded prophet. By a deluded prophet, verse twenty four. Then Zedekiah, the son of Kaana, came near and struck Micaiah on the on the cheek. This is a great insult on one hand, but it was also a symbolic challenge on the other, telling him, Hey, speak the truth. Verse twenty four, he says, How did the spirit of the Lord pass from me to speak to you? This guy is entirely blind. As his own sarcastic and and contemptible question, he rhetorically declares that Micaiah is a liar. He is not speaking the word of the Lord. And notice how Micaiah responds here, not with his fist, but with the truth. Verse 25, Micaiah says, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter an inner room to hide yourself. He answers in the spirit of Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18. He says, Zedekiah, time and truth always go together. A true prophet His words will always come to pass. And so you will understand your deception when Ahab is defeated and you run for your life. Secondly, the word of God is rejected by a hardened king. Verse 26, verse 26. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son. And say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and affl- uh, with bread and water until I return safely. Instead of heeding the word of God, instead of humbling himself under the word of God, Ahab hardened his heart at the prophetic word. In fact, in an act of of most outrageous rebellion, notice what Ahab does here. He pits his word against the word of Yahweh. Notice what he says. Thus says the king. I will return safely. Disaster? (laughs) There's no disaster here. I will return safely. Once and for all, Ahab aligns himself against the unstoppable word of the Lord. Verse 28, Micaiah's probably being dragged away here by these officials. He turns and he, he declares this to Ahab and to all who will listen. If you indeed return safely... The Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, listen, listen, all you people. He stakes his very calling, his very authority, his very uh, role as a prophet upon it. He says, everyone here, listen now to the word. Listen, Ahab. Listen, prophets. Listen, Jehoshaphat. Listen, Israel. Listen, Judah. Listen, listen all peoples. This is God's word. Yahweh has declared it. It cannot be undone. His word will not be stopped. Don't do this, guys. It's going to lead to your death. How do they respond? Silence and rejection. Silence and rejection. No one will listen. Not even the third character here, a foolish king, Jehoshaphat, he will not listen. Right. The only man who actually wanted to hear the word of the Lord here ends up rejecting the word of the Lord. And as we see, it almost cost him his life. And so that is where we end, this rejection. The, The word of the Lord is pronounced, the word is rejected, and they said, we want nothing to do it, we will go into battle. That brings us to the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the word. The fulfillment of the word, verses 29 through 40. What God has spoken, he will do. No one can stop him, not even the king of Israel. It begins here with man's ridiculous scheme to thwart the word. Man's ridiculous scheme to thwart the word. Verse 29. So despite this pronouncement, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up against Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into the battle. But you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Understand, Ahab's not trying to be humble here. He's not saying, ah, you know what? I'll let you lead this battle. I'll let you get all the glory here. You can lead the, the troops, lead the charge. Ahab's not trying to be courageous here. He's not trying to disguise himself so he can get closer into the fight and, 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 and get more bad guys. No, this is a selfish, ridiculous, deceived mind thinking that he can try and stop. God's word from coming true. Are you uh, No way, no way, Micaiah's right. There's no way that what he just said is going to be true, but just in case, just in case, I'll disguise myself so that I can have a better chance of survival. I will go unnoticed by the army. I will live, and then I'll get to show him who's right. However, it's this very disguise that proves to be an ominous foreshadowing of what is to come We see earlier in Scripture, Saul disguised himself before the witch of Endor. What had happened? Saul died. Jeroboam's wife tried to disguise herself before the prophet Ahijah. What happened? Well, Jeroboam died and was destroyed along with his son and his household. Whenever somebody seeks to attempt to thwart the word of God, disaster always strikes. Verse 31, now the king of Aram had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, saying, do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. Second Chronicles literally says he cries out to the Lord. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. At this point, it would seem then that Ahab's scheme is, is working. All right, they're, they're after that guy. They're not after me. I'm doing good right now. H- his enemies cannot find him. They're lured away by Jehoshaphat, who they come to find out is not the king of Israel. Jehoshaphat barely escapes with his life, but he does escape. And so at this point, the battle is going well. All, all is going good. Perhaps Ahab will survive. Perhaps he will live. Perhaps Israel will achieve victory. But, as we know, God's word cannot be stopped. We see, secondly, God's stunning capacity to fulfill the word. God's stunning capacity to fulfill the word. Verse 34, Now a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight. For I am severely wounded. The battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening. And the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then the cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. Everything's going so well for Ahab. Until, all of a sudden, it just so happens that an ordinary soldier draws his bow at random. Literally, the word says, in his innocence. other words, meaning he, he didn't know he, who he was shooting at. He didn't know that this was the king of Israel. Nevertheless, he pulls his bowstring back. He shoots. He lets the arrow go. And in one perfect shot, he hits Ahab in the minuscule slit of an opening it existed between his breastplate and his lower armored skirt right here along the abdomen hits ahab wounds him but notice it doesn't kill him right away and so ahab calls his driver to turn him around to remove him out of the battle but as the text makes the point to say the battle raged that is the battle got fiercer and fiercer the war got greater and greater it became more violent So much that it seems that Ahab was unable to disengage himself from the battle. And so slowly, ever so slowly, he watched helplessly as his life literally bled away. And then at sunset, as the sun went down upon the earth, so too did the sun set upon the life of Israel's most wicked king. Brothers and sisters, what's the point of that? The point is that nothing can stop the word of God. Nothing can stop omnipotent God from doing what he has declared. Like the rain and snow which come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth. So God's word does not return to him empty. It accomplishes exactly what he intends for it to accomplish. That's what Isaiah tells us. And if that's not clear enough, verse 38 goes on to make it even more clear. They washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. Now the harlots bathed themselves there according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. It's the climax there of our story. Now some skeptics are quick to point out that Well, actually, this is not according to the word. You know, Elijah predicted that actually Ahab was going to die and dogs lick up his blood in in Jezreel. That's where Naboth was, not Samaria. However, as we saw last time, as Eric pointed out, because of Ahab's humility that he showed, the short-lived humility at the end of chapter 21, God showed mercy to Ahab. He spared the judgment that was rightly due upon him. And he afforded Ahab a proper burial in Samaria. And so therefore, we can most confidently then join in the inspired author's assessment here that all things, all things were done in accordance with the word of God. That's the main point of this chapter. Is that nothing, no matter how hard man tries to deny it, no matter how hard man tries to to, to stop it. No matter how hard man hates it or, or tries to fight against what God has proclaimed, God's word always proves true. He will bring about what he has said in Ahab's life and in our lives. Verse 39, so we finish. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he built and all the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah, his son, became king in his place. With one final dig, the author reminds us that the king who had it all, uh, the king who had wealth in ivory houses, uh, the king who enjoyed military splendor and, and strength of cities, that very king is the king who died, who had his inn meet, and a pool of harlots with dogs licking up his blood. This is the sad reality for the man or the woman who believes that they can stop the word of the living God. Faith builders, let this chapter be a sobering reminder for us of the power of God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says what? It's alive and active sharper than any two-edged sword. As we finish, there's two encouragements I, I do want to give here, right? As we looked at this chapter, maybe you're like, well, it's not really that encouraging. Wes, yeah, it kind of gets toasted at the end. We can't find encouragement in here, right? And that God's word is unstoppable. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means that what we just learned in Numbers chapter six, these promises of God, nothing can stop them. The God who said, I will bless you, will bless us. These are the promises of God. And his word is unstoppable, not only in judgment, but for us who are believers in blessing. And so then we can trust, we can trust God's promises here. We can trust in the word of the living God, that what he has declared here in the scripture, nothing, no man, no principality, no angel, no ruler, no... Nothing um, uh, in the past, nothing in the, in the future, nothing made, nothing created, nothing can stop the word of God. We can trust his promises. And then secondly, then if we can trust it, then we should declare it, right? Let us be like Micaiah. Let us declare God's word. Let us proclaim the word which Paul says in 2 Timothy is, is unbound. It's not prisoned. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that I am unashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God unto salvation. Let us proclaim and preach that power. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your word because you are the one who has spoken the word. You are the God, the sovereign one, the omnipotent one who is bringing about all the past that you have declared. Lord, you have promised such wonderful promises in your scripture. And so we, as believers, we take upon that. We, we, we grab a hold of that and we trust that. or for we know that your word cannot be broken, it cannot be undone, that all you have declared because of Jesus Christ, all the promises of God, find their yes in him. Lord, we trust in that today. Help us, Lord. Whatever trial, whatever Sorrow we're going through, help us, Father. I trust in the power of your word to both sanctify us and to make us more like your son. For any who here who are not in Christ, understand at the same time that that same truth that's so precious and so beautiful to believers is terrifying to unbelievers. Anyone here, Lord, that, do not, that does not know Christ, let them not be like Ahab. Let them not continue in They're deceptive, they're deceived, they're deluded mindset and thinking. Lord, let them turn to Christ and find salvation, for if not, then surely they will perish. God, help us to declare faithfully your word, to go forward in all our lives, and all that we do, and all that we say, with all that we know, to declare the word of God, to say like Micaiah, as the Lord lives, I will speak what God has to say and nothing more. We love you, Lord. Thank you. Amen.